Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Who are you going to tell me about today, Karen? Today we are learning about John Andre. He was a Revolutionary War spy, and this is his story. John Andre was born in 1750 to French Protestant parents. His father was a merchant from Geneva, Switzerland, and his mother was born in France but was an English transplant. Education was very important to the Andre family, and even though they weren't really considered upper class, they wanted their son to appear to be, so they worked hard to educate him as much as possible. John went to school in Geneva, but returned to London in 1767. The young man was considered by most to be very well-mannered and charming. As his parents had hoped, he was more educated than those around him, and this tended to both set him apart and drove him to be as likable as possible in all social circles in order to be accepted. He was fluent in English, French, German, and Italian. He made sure to employ skills that would endear him to people, and he became adept at writing, reciting comical verse, playing music, specifically the flute, and sketching portraits, a skill young ladies at parties especially enjoyed. Now, in Britain, the military was primarily composed of the wealthy who basically bought their way into the upper ranks. Yes, the upper ranks of the army were made up of British aristocrats. The lower officers, lower ranks, came from families of wealthy landowners, or they were the sons of clergymen, lawyers, doctors, or successful merchants, like Andre. They also used the purchase system. Now, under the purchase system, people were able to buy a commission into the military. In effect, the military was structured according to social class. Here's just kind of a peculiar thing about the army. Generals never retired. So huh. at the outbreak of the war, the British had 120 generals, but over a third of those were too old or feeble to command in a war. So it doesn't sound like they expected to really physically engage in combat, and the military was kind of more ornamental than efficient, right? Well, not exactly. They weren't just ornamental. They kept a military framework, basically a skeleton army in peacetime. They'd been engaged in the Seven Years' War, which was a long-standing conflict, and that created war fatigue in Britain. They didn't really expect the Revolutionary War to be a full-blown war. They believed it no. to be an uprising that could quickly be put down. And they just weren't logistically prepared for this war. Okay, so it would be fair to say that it would kind of be compared to us using like the National Guard rather than active duty forces. Yes? Yes. In the beginning, okay. the British didn't think the conflict with America was going to necessitate wartime capability. This forced them to hire Hessian mercenaries to fight alongside of them. Again, they had the framework to quickly become effective. They were just spread thin from previous conflicts and didn't see this for the problem that it was. Okay. Well, 
Although John Andre felt an intense desire to serve, he was worried the working class family he hailed from wouldn't grant him the opportunities to succeed in Her Majesty's service because, like we mentioned earlier, soldiers often bought their ranks. Then John's father died, and the young man was no longer concerned with his own future, but instead felt responsibility to ensure the future of his family. So, he put his own dreams on the shelf, and he took on his father's merchant work in order to keep the family afloat. But, the same year John decided to give up on his personal dreams, a new dream began to take shape in his mind, and that shape was that of a lovely woman named Honora. The young man found himself head over heels in love, and to his great joy, she said that she loved him back. All he had to do was request her hand in marriage and become rich. Well, that's not an unreasonable demand. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So John dedicated himself to making as much money as possible. When he felt he was at a place to finally ask for her hand, he excitedly went to declare his love and intention to the girl's family, only to find that Anora decided she wasn't so madly in love with him and she dispatched him rather coolly. <laughs> this poor guy's like Charlie Brown trying to kick the football. Oh, yeah. I think he was a romantic. Well, Enora was foster sister to Anna Seward, an English poet known as the Swan of Litchfield. And she wrote that Andre was plagued with a broken heart. And pure despair drove him to go ahead and pick up and dust off his earlier plan to join the army. So, John Andre was commissioned on March 4, 1771, and he was selected for special training in Germany. After residing there for two years, he found that he also immersed himself in the language and culture of the community and found that he really, really enjoyed it, and they seemed to embrace the young recruit right back. After his training was complete, he was dispatched to America to serve as lieutenant in the Royal English Fusiliers that were traveling to Canada by way of Philadelphia and Boston. And the Fusiliers were named after the rifle they carried, but they were basically frontline infantry. As a British lieutenant in Canada, Andre was involved in the defense of St. John's, which was taken by American forces after a two-month siege. During that conflict, Andre was captured and became a prisoner of war and was ultimately transferred to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Now, British prisoners of war were treated better than one would think, and sometimes they were taken into homes to have a nice, comfortable meal with American families. And John Andre enjoyed one such meal in the home of a Mr. Hayes. Mr. Hayes' brother-in-law, Joshua Het Smith, was also in attendance. Although Andre and Smith got along fine and the two ended the visit as congenial acquaintances, they would meet again in five years with a very different conclusion. Once in Lancaster, enlisted prisoners were kept in barracks, while captured officers were kept at their own expense in local inns. Sometimes officers were also housed with families within the community, and John Andre was one of these men. He moved in with the family of Caleb Cope. The Cope family learned to truly love John Andre and basically treated him like he was a member of the family. He even gave art lessons to their oldest son. Lancaster was 
primarily a German-speaking community, and John Andre's fluent command of the German language and culture made him very popular within the town. Okay, Chuck, can you tell us a little bit about the difference between American POWs at the time and British prisoners of war? Well, the American Revolution complicated accepted POW customs, and you had a number of problems. The Europeans had established loose rules for POWs and their treatment, but from the British perspective, this was not a war but a rebellion. Therefore, the standards of prisoner treatment did not apply. They denied captured Patriot soldiers the official status of prisoner of war in the early years of the conflict. It was only after American forces captured significant numbers of British and Hessian soldiers at the Battle of Saratoga in 1777 that fear of retaliation forced the British to understand the necessity of improving conditions for Patriot prisoners. Also, Neither the British nor the Continental Forces had anticipated or were prepared for the number of prisoners they took. Now, Washington personally warned General Thomas Gage about mistreating Continental prisoners, and he reminded him that, I'm going to quote Washington here, obligation arising from the rights of humanity and claims of rank are universally binding and extensive. And he added a warning, except in case of retaliation. He had to stand by that later. He did. Basically, what mm -hmm. he was saying is, if you're going to treat our prisoners badly, we will do the same. Now, the other issue was that prisoner exchanges were common in European wars. But if the Crown got involved in negotiations with the Americans about prisoner exchanges, they were recognizing American independence. So prisoner exchanges were unofficial and inconsistent. But on the whole, the Continental Army recognized the rules of war to a far greater degree than the British, and they treated captured soldiers accordingly. The British generally didn't unless forced to, because they viewed the Americans as traitors to the crown. They didn't view them as soldiers. Okay. Okay, well, at the end of 1776, Andre was part of one such prisoner exchange and was returned to Howe, who was now wintering in New York. Andre gave Howe a journal of his observations of his time in the colonies, and Howe found the young man to be keenly observant, sharp, and articulate, and promoted him to captain, recommending him as an aide to Major General Charles Gray. Now, in 1777, serving under Gray, John Andre was among the 17,000 British that landed at the head of Elk, Maryland, which led to the occupation of Philadelphia. Chuck, didn't you tell me something about Gray? I did. Gray is notorious for his role in the Battle of Paoli. Continental Army General Anthony Wayne, on the Patriot side, was planning a surprise attack on Gray. But Gray struck first, and he used a novel way of doing it, a nighttime raid, something pretty uncommon. And he removed the flints from his soldiers' guns and instructed them to use bayonets only. Hmm. Now, Wayne lost the battle. There were 53 killed, about 100 wounded. The Patriots thought the use of bayonets was barbaric. 
until Valley Forge when they learned how to use them. And soon rumors spread that soldiers trying to surrender were stabbed to death. So the Americans used the battle to drum up anti-British sentiment, and Gray got the nickname No Flint Gray. Oh, wow. Well, the Gray wasn't really one of the more compassionate No, he was not. That's for sure. Not at all. John Andre was present at all the main battles, and his journal is one of the most reliable sources that we have of the British side of the war. During the winter of 1777-78, the charming John Andre made many friends in Philadelphia, including the Shippen family, and especially with their youngest daughter, Margaret, better known as Peggy. The Shippen family was one of Philadelphia's more prominent members. The family tried to appear neutral, but Edward Shippen, a merchant and a judge, held British sympathy. Peggy's older sister strayed from the family's beliefs, marrying a colonel in the Continental Army, but Peggy took her father's view, possibly taking it even farther than he did. Peggy's loyalist views came to light as she developed a friendship with John Andre. The young flirtatious woman met Andre at a party and smiled knowingly and coquettishly as he sketched her. The two spent evenings together where Andre would recite Peggy poetry, take her sledding, shopping, or entice her with his flute. I'm sure he was quite adept with his flute. Yeah, you could have reworded that a little differently, but go no, ahead. I'm... We're going to get the explicit rating on iTunes now. <laughs> I, I was talking about a musical instrument. I'm not sure what you're referring to. Although there's no hard evidence that you enjoyed a love affair. Rumor has it that Peggy pursued Andre pretty hard. Apparently, he's not the only one she did that with. And it's clear the two enjoyed each other's company quite a bit. We do know that the two continued to correspond, even after Peggy, at 19, married the 38-year-old Benedict Arnold. And can I throw in that the 38-year-old Benedict Arnold... He was a pretty hard road 38 by that time. I mean, he'd been right. wounded. He had a horrible limp. He had gout. I mean, he right. was. Right. He'd been widowed and already had two children, I believe, that Peggy became an instant parent to. Yeah. So he was kind of like a 78-year-old Benedict Arnold. <laughs> I don't know about that. But during his nine months in Philadelphia, John Andre lived in Benjamin Franklin's house. Despite public perceptions that the young man was quite polite, courteous, and compassionate, the locals were pretty surprised to find that when the British were preparing to evacuate the city, Andre was found looting Franklin's house. He was packing musical instruments. I don't know if there was a flute involved with that. Um, scientific apparatus and pictures. It turns out that Andre was working specifically under the orders of Gray. Following Gray's departure, John Andre was awarded the rank of major and appointed deputy adjutant general on the staff of Sir Henry Clinton, Howe's successor and the new British commander-in-chief. General Clinton was considered to be a loner and rather stubborn, but even he was not immune to Andre's charms. Clinton soon grew very confident in John Andre's resourcefulness and discretion, which is kind of questionable later, and he gave John Andre the job of British intelligence. 
Now, Chuck, we talked a lot about the importance of intelligence during the Revolutionary War in the Hercules Mulligan episode, right? We did. And in this war, yeah. the Patriots definitely held the advantage when it came to intelligence. Obviously, fighting on their home turf, they knew the layout of the land. The Patriots also had a far superior spy system in place, except for Nathan Hale, who was <laughs> the, world's the world's worst spy. Worst spy. Yes. Well, as for the British, it was really, on the whole, pretty terrible. Yeah, I think I think it mostly consisted of reading Washington's Facebook posts <laughs> and asking people in taverns if they'd seen, like, 5,000 Frenchmen with muskets. <laughs> Have you seen these guys? So yeah. Where did they go? <laughs> I mean, they yeah. had some intelligence successes, but on the, they completely missed the movement of the entire American and French armies. <laughs> From the northeast to Yorktown. so I would call that a bit of an intelligence failure. Yeah, and even with the loyalists there, they just could not get you know, a good spy ring in place. And, right. as, and well, we said were... in the Hercules Mulligan episode, one of the British commanders said, the Americans never outfought us, they outspied us. Right, right. John Andre went about his new duties with enthusiasm, like he kind of did everything, and he was considered fairly successful. His charm helped him amass American intelligence from dissenters, and he got some information from escaped British prisoners. In May of 1779, Major Andre received another letter from his dear friend Peggy Arnold, and this requested his help in procuring a special type of cloth and ribbon from England, because I'm sure there were no other loyalists that she could have contacted for such a thing, right? Right, right. But tucked inside the letter was another note penned by a different hand than Peggy's familiar one, and the note was signed simply Monk. Andre suspected right away that it might be General Benedict Arnold. The note hinted that the general may be ready to give up the American cause and join forces with the Brits. And John Andre got really, really excited, and he shared the news with General Clinton, who took on a more tempered mood regarding the note. Clinton was just not convinced that General Arnold would be so willing to give up his career and turn traitor. Why would he be driven to do such a thing? Well, John Andre suspected he might know the reason. He knew Peggy pretty well and was familiar with her expensive taste and love of throwing lavish parties, and he had heard whispers that Arnold's financial situation was unable to sustain Peggy's lifestyle. Chuck, what do you think about it? Well, I think the best explanation for his treason is that he married the wrong person. Oh, okay. Arnold was a very successful general. He led many successful campaigns in the war. But he did have enemies within the military, especially John Brown, who was a very highly regarded officer in the Patriot ranks. And prophetically, John Brown said of Arnold, money is this man's God. And to get enough of it, he would sacrifice his country. Wow. Yeah. Also, in 1777, a group of lower-ranking men were promoted ahead of him. Then Arnold married Peggy, and they led a very lavish lifestyle in Philadelphia. But they racked up substantial debt. 
So money problems and the resentment Arnold felt over not being promoted faster, I think were really the factors in his decision to become a turncoat. Right. I think he felt very easily slighted, don't you? Yeah, he was, we'll get into this later, but he had some personality flaws. I, w I would say that that's probably an understatement. General Clinton was willing to find out more, but he cautioned the eager Andre to proceed slowly and with great caution. Messages were smuggled between Arnold and Andre for over a year. John Andre used the cover name John Anderson, which really wasn't all that creative. John and you know, John Andre, John Anderson. I don't know. Doesn't seem very creative to me. And Arnold signed each letter with a different name. Monk, Gustavus, and Mr. Moore. It was the letter signed by Mr. Moore that convinced Andre that it was time to act. General Arnold stated in the letter that he would agree to sell access to West Point for 500 British pounds. Okay, so Benedict Arnold had been made commander of West Point, right? Right. So what strategic impact could this have? Well, West Point sat on this sharp curve in the Hudson River. At West Point, it was possible to put defenses in the Hudson River that would prevent any ships from navigating it. So possession of West Point would have enabled the British to control the Hudson River and divide the colonies. Oh, okay. And if Arnold would have surrendered West Point at that point in the war, Washington would have had to retreat from his position in New York, break off his plans to unite with the French, and leave French troops vulnerable in Long Island. The British then could have possibly defeated the French. It truly would have turned the war. Right, right. Well, in his letter... Arnold only stated one condition, kind of an odd condition, actually. Before he would officially agree to anything, he wanted to speak with a British agent on neutral ground. John Andre wanted to be that agent. It thrilled him to think that he could be instrumental to ending and winning the war. But General Clinton really didn't want to give him the job. He thought the mission might be too dangerous and that Andre was simply not trained well enough for this type of work. Major Andre countered that all he was going to do was meet Arnold at night on neutral ground and reassure him that the British would honor his request. He also argued that Arnold would be much more likely to trust him because of his friendship with Arnold's wife. Yeah, generally, an intimate friendship with someone's wife does not make for a trusting relationship, as a rule. Right? And especially right. a guy like Arnold. He's not going to... Yeah. Right. Especially this particular wife. <laughs> I mean, right. that might have something to do with it, too. Well, before Andre left, General Clinton gave him very specific orders that must be obeyed. Number one. Under no circumstances was Andre to go behind enemy lines, just neutral ground. Number two, accept no papers under any condition. Number three, most definitely do not remove the uniform and don a disguise. If he did, he would be seen as a spy rather than a prisoner of war. And when we came across these, didn't you feel like it was a mistake to say, Whatever you do, don't do these three things. 
Right, right. Well, Major Andre didn't really think his mission was all that dangerous, and he was just super, super excited to get started. He sailed up the Hudson aboard the British ship, the Vulture, which seems like kind of an odd name for a ship, which was just inside British territory. The plan was for a rowboat to then be provided by Arnold, cloaked by darkness, to take the Major to neutral territory on the western bank. All through the night, Andre waited for the rowboat to appear, but it never did. For the first time, John Andre felt a pang of unease. What if this was all an American trick? But Andre just could not allow himself to give up his dreams of heroism, and he decided to wait just a little bit longer. The second night, the rowboat did arrive. Despite the fact that Americans were known to shoot anything in the water that moved, Major Andre managed to make it safely to the shore. When Andre met Arnold, his first impression wasn't really so favorable. General Arnold was twice his wife Peggy's age, he wore a perpetual frown, and he had a terrible limp. The men moved farther into the woods to discuss their plans. Despite talking through the night, Arnold was still unsatisfied with their negotiations. So when dawn began to break through the trees, Arnold insisted that Andre would be unable to row back to the vulture without being caught. So, Arnold convinced Andre to follow him to a trusted friend's house to continue talks until nightfall could provide cover. Major John Andre remembered his commander's warning to not go behind enemy lines, but he decided that it was necessary to move forward. Strike one. At the close of the day, Andre felt the meeting had gone better than imagined, and despite not following his orders, he believed General Clinton would be pleased with the mission's results. He was wrong. Right before Andre said his farewells, Arnold produced several maps and detailed plans he wanted the Major to deliver to Clinton. Again, General Clinton's warnings sounded in John's mind. Except no papers. Andre made one feeble protest, then gave up because he did not want to offend Arnold. Strike two. Arnold left Andre with his friend, Joshua Smith, who showed John to a room where he could rest. There was a window near the bed, and John Andre could see the vulture floating at harbor. His nerves began to ease. His mission would soon be complete. He stretched out on the bed and tried to get some rest. Just before sundown, Andre was awakened by a knock at the door. Smith was there, holding a broad-brimmed hat and shabby jacket. And he relayed the unfortunate news that the men who had rowed him ashore the previous night did not want to chance taking him back to the vulture, so the two of them would have to go a different route and ride further north to another boat that they could take to shore. From there, Smith would direct him to the nearest British outpost. In order to make the trip safely, Andre would have to wear a disguise to make him appear American. Major John Andre's heart began to race. The third caution that General Clinton had given him, the one that he emphasized the most, he was about to break. John swallowed his fear, took a breath, and decided to do it. And a swing and a miss, Karen, and you know what that means. You know, this guy is like a teenager. It's like he gave him a chemistry set with a hundred right. things and said, but whatever you do, don't mix these two things together. And he just couldn't wait right. to get to the basement and put those things together. 
I think that John Andre, even though he showed a lot of confidence, I think he might have been very, very insecure because his family wasn't wealthy, but he had kind of traveled in wealthy circles. He probably tried to prove himself all the time and never wanted to offend anyone. And I think that this could have kind of driven sort of his actions. But anyway, Smith and Andre rode to Stony Point, where they took a ferry to the east side of the Hudson. They then faced an American checkpoint, but were waved through with no problem, and Andre's tension finally began to ease. As night began to fall, an American patrol officer stopped them and strongly recommended they stay at an inn rather than continue their journey due to some recent violence and robberies on the road after dark. To not heed the officer's warning would have been suspicious and rude, so much to John's dismay, he ended up spending another restless night behind enemy lines, with papers, and a disguise. At the first ray of dawn, Major Andre was eager to complete the journey. He and Smith finally reached Pines Bridge. Smith said this was as far as he would go because territory beyond that point was neutral. Okay, now Chuck, do you remember at the beginning of this story when, as a POW, John Andre was taken to dinner at the Hayes home where Hayes' brother-in-law was there? I do not. That's not, that was not one of my parts, so no, I didn't pay attention to it. Okay, well, I did mention that. Okay. <laughs> and in a strange coincidence, the man that had been accompanying John Andre on this trip was the same Joshua Smith. It's the same guy. Oh, okay. That so Joshua time, Smith. That Joshua. Okay, yeah. now I got you. Yeah. Now I got you. Next time you should probably listen to the whole script and not just your part, but that's just a suggestion. Thank you. This being the last leg of the trip, Andre breathed a sigh of relief. He finally relaxed enough to enjoy the scenery around him, and he started to really feel the pride of a job well done. But suddenly, he was accosted by three armed men. They were probably robbers under the employ of the American rebels in order to capture supplies. This was a practice which was used by both sides during the American Revolution. Andre remained reserved and remarked, Gentlemen, I hope you belong to our party. Andre was alluding to the loyalists. The men asked what party he was talking about. The lower party, he responded, which was code that all friends of the king would understand. We do, they answered. They mistakenly assumed he was talking about the location of Terrytown in New York. It's, it's like that Evan Costello thing, who's on first. Right. Andre assumed by their responses that they were loyalists. So he told them that he was a British officer on an important mission that needed to be completed. <laughs> this is kind of funny, actually. <laughs> <laughs> then the men identified themselves as patriots. And Andre rapidly changed his story, saying that he was actually an American officer. And then he produced the passport papers that Arnold had given him. I was just testing you guys to see. Right. I, that first story kidding. I told you, yeah, that was, I was just checking you guys out, seeing just if you kidding. were real. Yeah. Right. The robbers were incredibly suspicious. <laughs> I wonder why. And excited by the prospect that they may have bagged themselves a spy and the reward that could go with that. They soon discovered the secret papers Arnold had given to Andre on the subject of turning over West Point to the British, which Andre had hastily stuffed in one of his stockings. For a while, <laughs> the men studied the papers. They were unable to read them because they were basically illiterate. <laughs> well, 
They had two things working against them there. (laughs) One, when you write in invisible ink and you can't (laughs) read. (laughs) But they studied him and came up with something anyway. They're like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Now in desperation, Andre offered to give the men his pocket watch and his horse if they would let him go. You know what? I Can I go back to that, Karen, just for one second? Yeah, yeah. Do you think that they were like, okay... I, I can't really read the writing. What's this word here? And he would tell him, and then he'd say, what's the next word? What's this word here? <laughs> Acting like they weren't illiterate. And of course, Andre would just tell them what the words were, not knowing they were illiterate. Right. And so they were, they might've been testing him the whole time. He just assumed right. they were idiots and they might've not been at all. Well, I have a conspiracy theory regarding all of this, but we're just going to go with the the story for now. So, in desperation, Andre offered to give the men his pocket watch and his horse if they would let him go. But it was too late. They took their prisoner to the headquarters of the American Army in Tappan, New York. Andre was then held under arrest at what came to be known as the Old 76 House. It was actually a home and a tavern. It served as a meeting place for local patriots. It was not, nor has it ever been, or was it ever again, a prison. In a letter to Washington, Andre revealed himself, and he confessed everything, including Benedict Arnold's betrayal. But the confession didn't really matter. The Americans had already figured out what had happened, and they had tried to arrest Arnold, but he escaped. So what, what actually ended up happening to Benedict Arnold? Well, he did become a brigadier general in the British Army, and he was given, uh, yeah, he was given 1,600 troops to fight in Virginia, and He was pursued by our old friend Lafayette, who really desperately wanted to catch and hang him. But he never did catch up with him. Oh, I bet he did. Yeah, he was a determined guy. Yeah. Now, actually, Arnold did pretty well in battles in Virginia. He eventually retreated to Portsmouth. The officers underneath Arnold never liked him and never trusted him. But before the British surrender in October, Arnold requested permission to go back to England to give his thoughts on the war in person. How arrogant is that? I want exactly. to give my thoughts on the I want war. To give my like who's going to listen to you? Yeah. And you can't do it from here? <laughs> right. Anyway, he renewed that request when he learned of the surrender. He decided it was <laughs> time to get out of dodge at that point. Never mind. Yeah, which this time Clinton granted him. So in 1781, Arnold and his family left New York for England, and he spent most of his life distrusted by most British. Edmund Burke, who we in our other podcast will bring up now and again, openly hoped that the government would not put Arnold, and his quote, at the head of a part of British army, lest the sentiments of true honor, which every British officer holds dearer than life, should be afflicted. Hmm. He also applied for a job in the East India Trading Company and was told by an officer, although I am satisfied with the purity of your conduct, (laughs) although I am satisfied with the purity (laughs) of your conduct, the generality do not think so. (laughs) So while this is the case, no power in this country could suddenly <laughs> place you in the situation you aim at under the East India Company. So to put it in a word, 
No. <laughs> right. Yeah. You might, you know, you might want to go see if you can get a job as a greeter at ye old Walmart. <laughs> Like the British that. are so exceedingly polite. <laughs> they, are. they they he was very polite about telling him people think you're a dirt bag. Okay. <laughs> we don't like you. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Well, when word got to General Clinton that his aide had been captured, he pleaded for Major John Andre's life, but the rules of war were clear. A spy caught behind enemy lines would be sentenced to death. Which is kind of why Clinton had warned him so intensely. But, you know. The only way that the young man's life would be spared would be through an exchange for Benedict Arnold. Although General Clinton had nothing but distaste for Arnold, he felt he had to honor the bargain and he would not release Arnold to the Americans. The honorable thing would have been for Benedict Arnold to give himself up but we are talking about Benedict Arnold. So instead, he did the worst thing he could possibly do. He wrote a very arrogant letter to Washington threatening vengeance if a British officer should be hanged. Yeah, you're not really helping me here, Arnold, because you just keep your commentary to yourself. <laughs> right. Like, how bold is that? Too? Yeah. He just betrayed the country and he's like, I, don't you do this because I care I about the I double dog dare you, George Washington. <laughs> right. Right. John Andre was resigned to his fate. Yeah, especially did... after that letter. <laughs> right. But he did write another letter to Washington entreating him to shoot him with honor rather than hang him. But Washington, for some reason, denied his request. We don't really know why. Perhaps it was important to Washington to show consistency and strength as a leader. That's that's what I think it was, because he had said earlier, you know, you if you right. do this, we have to do this. Perhaps he felt the need to avenge the death of poor Nathan Hale. Some historians even suggest that the dismissive treatment that Washington had received at the hands of the British top brass during the French and Indian War affected his treatment of Andre. We really aren't sure. I really don't think it's the last thing because that's kind of out of character to a certain degree. Washington wasn't really a petty man. He was a pretty honorable. He had right. a pretty honorable war code. Right. He wasn't perfect. But I mean, I think that he tried. I think it was about consistency. And it was like I kind of too. one of those. Um, uh, the burden of leadership sort of. Right. Right. Okay. I do have a conspiracy theory about this. And of I'm gonna... course you do. You have. <laughs> You have conspiracy theories for everything, so... I do. I do. I talk a lot about that in our other podcast, but... Okay, do... Karen, what conspiracy theory are you going to tell me today? Well, I feel like this is this could all be about Peggy, Ship, and Arnold, and it really could just be a very drawn-out case of murder. So, I know some historians theorize now that Peggy may have actually been behind Arnold being willing to turn traitor... But I can't help but wonder if Benedict Arnold, being the petty man that he was, set the whole thing up as a trap for John Andre. Here's why I think this. Arnold was shady really the whole time. If you go from like the rowboat on, I mean, first of all, why did he even want to meet him? Why did he need to see a British agent? They had done all of the correspondence through letters for over a year. Why all of a sudden did that have to change? Right? He also knew the rules of war and what would indict Andre of being a spy rather than a prisoner of war. 
and he coincidentally set up those exact scenarios. It's also interesting that five years prior, Joshua Smith worked for the Patriots, and now, all of a sudden, he's a trusted confidant of Benedict Arnold. It's almost like when they dressed John Andre and sent him on his way. Right. He did not know that Benedict Arnold had stuck a big piece of paper to his back that said spy on it. <laughs> this is a spy. Right. And there just happened to be the three robbers who were not satisfied with the loot he offered them, his watch and the horse. And all of a sudden, they just wanted to search Andre. That's kind of weird. You would think they would just be robbers are usually satisfied with what they can get. Right. Um, and what was really the purpose of the letter that Benedict Arnold wrote to Washington? It almost like that solidified. I mean, I kind of wonder, did Benedict Arnold's letter come before John Andre's letter asking for the mercy of being shot rather than being hanged? Because if so, you know, Washington was like mad. He was just, yeah. heck no. I mean, are you kidding me? So it, it just seems like Benedict Arnold did everything he could to literally like nail the coffin shut for this kid. I mean, it just it just seems a little odd. If not, it is a really crazy set of circumstances that led to him being caught. Right. Yeah. Just tragic coincidences. But that many coincidences seems very, very strange to me. So Okay, can we be done with your conspiracy theory now or well, one more thing. To top it off, Benedict Arnold didn't really end up faring so poorly from the whole situation, just like you mentioned earlier. So his defection to the British worked out pretty well for him. He got money. He got land in Canada. He got pensions for himself, his wife, and his kids. So it just makes me wonder if the goal wasn't actually just to do away with the man his wife might be carrying a torch for. I'm also sure that he read the letters between Andre and his wife, and he probably understood Andre's mind and he knew just how to trap him. So that's my thought. I also think it's interesting that upon learning about Benedict Arnold's treachery, Peggy was said to go into just complete histrionics. She acted like she had a nervous breakdown and she was screaming incoherently. And I think it's possible that some of that reaction might have been sincere. She might have realized what her husband had done to the man that she loved. Or, just like Aaron Burr and his wife proposed and modern historians have suggested, maybe Peggy was behind it all. We don't know. Either way, Arnold died in 1801, and Peggy auctioned off much of their property to cover his debts. She died in London in 1804, from cancer or possibly well, guilt oh okay <laughs> <laughs> not a broken heart though could be broken heart could be guilt we don't know well i will say this arnold's character was pretty shady in general yeah and his fighting tactics when switching sides were often too machiavellian for even the british right after the battle of fort griswold Arnold burned New London, Connecticut to the ground, and he considered this a great success because of the great economic damage he had done. Ugh. But he lost a quarter of his troops in the process, and Clinton said, I can ill afford more such victories. <laughs> yeah. 
So his fighting on both sides, it really showed his brilliance, but it also showed, as many people described him, that he could be a mean mercenary. Mercenary is a word that comes up quite a bit when you talk about Benedict Arnold, when you read about him. Right. So what I'm hearing you say is that an involved plot to kill John Andre would not have been beyond Benedict Arnold. No, it wouldn't have been beyond him at all. Right. In fact, it might have actually been in character for Benedict But he, he would have had to have known that Andre was the one that was going to come to him. That's all. See, but he had read the letters. So well, I that's think true. he knew that. I that's think he true. knew how to trap this kid. And he had been writing to him for over a year. So I don't know. And John Andre was very wordy. I mean, he really was. So he probably gave a lot away. But as for John, with nothing left to do but wait for death, Andre had a final surge of creativity. He wrote poetry and he drew a self-portrait. <laughs> I don't know why, but that just strikes me as so him. On the morning of October 2nd, 1780, Major John Andre ate his breakfast heartily, dressed himself in uniform, shaved, and gave his self-portrait to his guard, whom he had become friends with over the course of his imprisonment. Andre's manservant, which apparently they have in prison, began to weep, and his guard became solemn. Andre, on the other hand, did not show the least bit of emotion, and he actually requested that his manservant leave until he could appear to be more manly. <laughs> man, go get yourself together, man. Right. Get back. <laughs> are you a maidservant or are you a manservant? Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. It's not like you're the one getting hung here. Yeah, what right. are you so upset right. about? Okay. No, seriously. Okay. More guards arrived and Andre walked outside with them. When approaching the gallows, Andre instinctively took two steps back. Why the sudden emotion, sir? Asked the guard. Well, maybe. Maybe it's because I'm about to die. No. I have a fear I, of heights. I'm resolved to my death, Andre said, but I detest the mode. Then, for a brief moment, Andre succumbed to fear, but quickly regained his composure and muttered under his breath. It will be but a momentary pang. The young man set himself upon the gallows, but when a blindfold was offered to him, he refused and took his own handkerchief out of his pocket and tied it about his eyes. He also tightened the noose around his own neck. Have you anything to say? asked an American officer who was standing beside him. Andre pulled the handkerchief from his eyes and in a very strong tone said, I pray you to bear witness that I meet my fate like a brave man. As I suffer in defense of my country, I must consider this hour as the most glorious in my life. Remember that I die as becomes a British officer, while the manner of my death must reflect disgrace on your commander. And with that... Major John Andre left this world. Much like Nathan Hale in America, he was, he was a lot like Nathan Hale, actually. Andre was considered a hero in Britain, and his name was used as a battle cry in the British Army. Because of his reputation as a friendly and overall very kind man, his enemies, too, respected his memory and lamented his death. Even Alexander Hamilton said of him, 
never did a man suffer death with justice or deserve it less. Major John Andre was a son, a student, a lovesick poet, a soldier, a musician, an artist, a friend, a romantic, an officer, a dreamer, a prisoner, and he was a spy. Although not a great one. <laughs> no. If you like the show and would like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. You can become a Patreon supporter. You can find us at Patreon under Spy Stories. You can tell your friends about our show. You can share our episodes. You can leave us positive reviews on iTunes. We have a Facebook group, Spy Stories Podcast. And please stay tuned at the end of the episode for the podcast that we recommend this week. The life of John Andre reminds us that no matter what natural gifts we are given or how charming we may be, there is no guarantee of another day. His life reminds us how important it is to listen carefully, to use discernment, and to use trust sparingly. John Andre believed that the potential to end the war and ensure success for his country was worth any risk. While idealistic, the young man was still very brave. He took a chance to do what he believed was the right thing, which reminds us that just like Harriet the Spy says, life is hard, but a good spy gets in there and fights. And until next week, keep fighting. The issues splitting our society are too often discussed out of context and lack clarity. To combat this, we break down today's issues and view them through the lens of history. We are a former Democrat and former Republican whose parties have left us. With open minds, facts, and history as our guides, we have embarked on a quest for political truth. Come join us at Context and Clarity Podcast, where we are not enemies, but friends. Mm -hmm.